0: Um, so, I've got 10 points I want to share this morning, 10 points, and um, what are you laughing about? 10, Is you're laughing about 10 points, that's not enough? That should be plenty. No, it's 10 points, and the pages added up a little bit, but I felt like everything that's in here I really wanted to say, and I really hope you uh, uh, attune yourself to what I am about to say, because it, it matters to how we leave here today and start to live even more differently tomorrow, perhaps. I I do find, I had a conversation recently with a a younger man, and I said, you know, if you leave a, a service, and I'm probably guilty of this at times, but if you leave a service and all you're taking home with you is a neat story or an interesting metaphor, but you're not taking home with you something that was expounded from the Word of God, if you don't even know what text is really being preached through, then the preacher has failed you. You are not living and abiding on the Word of God at this point. You're being directed by little stories and happy thoughts and things that might trigger you to act differently in some way. And and I tell you what, ten points in the Christian church are necessary. I... If we go back in the and become comfortable as a church or as a society, which I don't know that we've left this yet, with three points, a story, and a Bible verse to build your life around, no wonder we feel like we're living in a cesspool as a culture. And it's, it's not completely a cesspool, don't take those words wrong, but How we got here is because it was three points and a nice story and send you on your way. Christians need to think deeper, and so I really hope that none of you fall asleep at this time. And we're pretty good at not being sleepers. There was a time when I first came to the church that uh, I could pick out about three or four sleepers in a Sunday morning. So if you feel the urge to doze, stand up. Walk around a little bit. <laughs> Stay awake. And I know some of you had busy days yesterday. Brian, you're probably one of them sharing you too. You know, you guys are exhausted, I'm sure. But that's no excuse. So I'm going to keep you all awake. So first point is I want to define culture. We'll use the word culture. And, and John Frame, who's a theologian, a really genuine man, he defined culture this way. He said, creation is what God makes culture is what we make, okay? Creation is what God makes, culture is what we make. So the difference has to do with God's raw material, such as people and animals and vegetation and minerals and stars and the earth and water, etc., all God's stuff. Those things you would have found, okay, after the six days of creation, that is what God makes. And he continues to sustain those things and to replicate those things. So God is active still in his creating process that way. Whereas culture is what man does. Okay, It's when he takes these raw materials and he he makes new things from them. He uses them for his own benefit and for the benefit of others. And this includes... Includes about anything you'd lay your eyes on in this room is not what God made, it's what man made, if you're going to make that distinction, okay? So the carpet, the windows, the architecture, as well as the songs that we sing, that is a product of culture. The sermon you're hearing is culture. The money you will give, the clothes you put on, if you've got makeup on, deodorant, that's all, those are all products of culture. Culture. Here's another definition, okay? This is the second definition. There's no more definition, but this is a good one. This is from P. Andrew Sandlin. He writes, culture strictly defined, culture strictly defined denotes those products of human interactivity with nature that reflect the self-conscious goal of human benefit. So we're interacting with God's things with the conscious idea that man's going to benefit from what we're doing, all right? And so this is what he says, education, science, entertainment, technology, architecture, the arts, even such simple human products as meals and toys and personal grooming products. The category of culture introduces a sharp divide from nature. We know that God created nature, it is his handiwork. God does not create culture, not directly, anyway. Sandlin goes on, a tomato a tomato is not an aspect of culture, a pizza is. Oxygen is not an example of culture, an oxygen mask is. King David is not defined as culture. Michelangelo's famous sculpture, King David, in 1504, is culture. Creation plus man's beneficial interaction with it equals culture, according to Sandlin. There you have it. Two basic definitions of culture. So when I use the word culture... Hopefully you know where I'm going with this. Point two culture is no longer a perfect pursuit. Okay, when God made Adam and Eve in the garden, he said, be fruitful and multiply and take dominion. That was the cultural mandate. You've got to go forth and do these things. But it's no longer a perfect pursuit. Since Adam's sin and the fall of mankind, all culture takes place, it takes place removed from the Garden of Eden. And away from that tree of life. We weren't allowed to keep eating and eat from that tree of life and live forever. We ruined it. Cain and Abel and their parents and the rest of people have lived, therefore, and worked east of Eden. All things became more difficult to do. God's curse made it so. Also, our work and the culture it produces, is always tarnished some by sin. And though men, women, and children are still to carry out that dominion mandate, a.k.a. the cultural mandate given to our first parents, we do so in a weakened condition since the expulsion from the garden our building and growing and inventing and thinking and cult cultivating has been attended by what weeds and thorns and rust and moth and mistakes and miscalculations and pain and death all of these were meant to remind us to remind us what to remind us that good culture cannot develop or last develop or last apart from the promised seed of the woman. Part three. See, these points are going pretty quickly, right? Number three, culture is a product for Jesus Christ. He was the second Adam. He is the second Adam, who's the great inheritor of all cultural products. Huh. Really? Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, he's the one who brings the world forgiveness, okay, for that sin, for our sin. He's the restorer, the one who makes things right again. He sanctifies people. He tells us what we should do. He's the giver of everlasting life. Listen, the Son of God was the creator of the cosmos. He was the creator of the cosmos, but He's also the heir of it. It is His. So when people create, culture, we create it for Him. Whether whether or not we think of Him, we create it for Him. We learn from Scripture that Jesus, the Son of Man, is the inheritor to whom kings of the earth bring their riches. He is the one in whom all nations must hope. So whatever man has created... Throughout all of our history and all history to come, it belongs to Jesus Christ. And it's a very good chance that we've got tens of thousands of generations to come. Maybe not. We'll see. Point four we should appreciate, therefore, that non-Christians are culture creators as well as Christians. Both represent Adam and Eve, and God gives each the skills and capacity and places people in history with an opportunity to improve upon his creation, to, to cultivate to it. God the Spirit opens minds. I'm not talking about simply Christians' minds. I'm talking about all minds. God the Spirit opens minds. He discloses discloses hidden things so that people can discover and invent and use them. So, the, the field of mathematics... It goes back. It goes back to the Mesopotamians. It, it, it develops in, and is found in Egypt, and finally, the Greeks and Archimedes, who is recognized as the inventor of mathematics, right, in, by some in a sense. Archimedes, he's also given this this uh, credit as a man for discovering the concept of the center of gravity. And that led to engineering inventions. The lever, pulley, catapult, the screw. Louis Pasteur was a French biologist who's often regarded as the father of modern microbiology. Pasteur is renowned for developing the germ theory of disease and creating the process of pasteurization which prevents the spoiling of many foods. Ben Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, is given credit for inventing the lightning rod, bifocals, swim fins. Swim fins? That does not seem like a, a hard invention or piece of culture. It took that long for Franklin to invent swim fins. Huh. Urinary catheters. He could have kept that one maybe. That probably does more good. Than the other. Other things he created. And one thing about Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, he's, he never applied for a patent. I didn't know that till I was reading this week about it. Never applied for a patent. He's known to have said this, and I think this it sounds right. I'm not against patents, but this, this sounds very um, noble. He said that, that as we enjoy great advantages from the inventions of others, we should be glad of an opportunity to serve others by any invention of ours. And this, should be, and this we should do freely and generously. Thomas Edison, on the other hand, obtained 1,093 patents, and he had about 850 more in store before he passed. They were up and coming. Edison is known for improving upon other men's inventions. Samuel Morris' telegraph, he improved upon also Alexander Graham Bell's telephone. He strengthened the weakness of Bell's transmitter, and he helped to develop and market a design for the incandescent light bulb so that they actually could use it as a long-lasting, widespread bulb Edison I think serves as a good example of a man building upon another man's work which we all should be doing now were all these men believers in the triune God did they think Jesus owns it all But we're pretty glad we have lights on in here right now. You can sit in a warm building and calculate. It appears that Edison was agnostic. Franklin was a deist. That's not Christian. Archimedes was perhaps tuned to the Greco-Roman classical religion of the gods that they had then. But each was a non-believer. And only Pasteur, who would have called himself Christian, was a French Catholic Christian at that. So then, all men, okay, believers and non believers, create culture. We're all human. Bad or misdirected culture must be judged and discarded. It's destined to be burned. Good culture belongs to Jesus Christ. He will continue to carry it on. But every person, Christian and non, has the ability and responsibility to create culture. Unfortunately, both non-Christian and Christian create good and bad culture. Point five, go back to the beginning of the Bible, it records uh, Cain's household, his godless household, and the effective agents of culture that were part of that household. Turn to Genesis 4 real quick, Genesis 4. I think this is amazing. When you start to think of how history developed, Cain lived before the flood, right? So before everything was wiped out by, by God in the waters. I I just took and began in Genesis 4.16. It says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife. This is after he killed his brother. Okay, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujal, and Mahujal fathered Methusael, and Methusael fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in... Okay, here's where it gets kind of interesting. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy. Sevenfold. Okay, so bear with me now. I gave you two definitions up front that were readings of other men's work. I want to read something that Dr. Francis Nigel Lee wrote about this passage. And if you glaze over because I'm reading something, you'll miss some really rich um, stuff. This is what Nigel Lee expounds on in these verses. He says, now this, the city of Enoch, which Cain built, was, of course, certainly no modern metropolis. To start with, it probably consisted only of a few permanent dwellings surrounded by a wall of wooden stakes to protect the settlement against enemies and wild animals. He's conjecturing some much like the log cabins and forts of the early American pioneers, or perhaps even rather more closely, resembling the primitive American Indian settlements of old. This is the city of Enoch he's talking about, right? And yet this primitive city of Enoch was nevertheless the germ of all modern cities and all contemporary culture and technology. For its degree of community life, of of specialized trades, of communal protection, and of social cooperation. It gave the inhabitants of that city a measure of spare time for the development of culture. Just as the stake fence or city wall gave them a measure of security from enemies and wild beasts. Indeed, it is in precisely such an environment that one could become the full-time blacksmith without having to collect his own food, and where both could supply one another's needs in an atmosphere of mutual interdependence and common benefit. In other words, okay, you don't have to grow your own grain in order to make your own bread. You can sell locks and buy bread from the store with someone else who made the bread, and someone else even who grew the grain and we had a law enforcement, and we had uh, uh, governors and, and others to make sure that we were protected on all sides. We didn't have to worry about protecting ourselves anymore, except for perhaps in our homes. So this is what this city that Cain built, the city of Enoch, what it gave them the ability to do. It gave them the ability to have a division of labor. So Francis Nigel Lee argues that it is the city that provided protection and allowed for the division of labor. People could take on a specialized calling when they lived together and exchanged services. Here's what he says. Lee points out, he he points to the products of that early culture. And listen to what he says. Hence, we read that the descendants of Cain, all living in the city of Enoch, each had his own trade, his own cultural specialty. Jabel was the father of such as dwell in tents and of such as have cattle. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all such as handle the harp and organ. And Tubal Cain, he was an instructor of, ed- of every artificer in brass and iron. Jabel was not only the father of all cattle ranchers and hence the pioneer of all livestock and agricultural technology, okay, this is where it began, this is where it began. It wasn't that he had advanced so, so thoroughly in these areas of agricultural technology, but this is where it began. It's in seed form. But we also read that he was, in addition, the father of all tent dwellers, and hence the pioneer of all architecture. Furthermore, as tents may be made either from animal skins or woven from vegetable materials, Jabel was probably also a weaver and as such the pioneer of the clothing industry. And as Abraham Kuyper pointed out, Jabel conceivably slaughtered his sheep to obtain the necessary wool for the manufacturer of woolen goods as textiles as well. Jubal was the first to use the harp, a percussion instrument, and the organ, a wind instrument. As his name implies, he was the pioneer of all jubilation and of all music. It is here where we must seek the germ of all symphonic concerts and all operatic performances, of all songs, and of all vocal accompaniment. Almost done with this reading. i got one more paragraph. It's a great one, though. The germ of mechanical industry is to be sought in the workshop of Tubal Cain. Scripture specifically calls him a blacksmith. And the authorized or King James version of the English Bible describes him as an instructor of every artificer. That is, an entrepreneur or teacher of every manufacturer and engraver. Here then we also have the embryo, of the fine arts, as well as of, the, of heavy industry, as is evidenced by the name of Lamech's wife, Ada. For Ada means adorn or ornaments. And as Tubal Cain, the instructor of every artificer or engraver, was probably the manufacturer of this ornament with which Ada adorned herself, it is probable that the origin of all jewelry and sculpture and painting are to be found here too. Now all of this quite considerable growth of culture among these godless Canaanites was possible only because of the non-saving common grace which God so unmeritedly bestowed upon them in spite of their unbelief. Whew, that's it. But look, we all participate in the creation and development of culture. It is when we turn God's banana into banana bread. And it is when we use file folders in a file cabinet or make a bed or write with pen and paper, hum a song. Think about that. Hum a song. Hmm. God created, gave us voices. That's His. He gave us languages. That's His creation. But people are making culture when they put together sentences and communicate their thoughts. Is it good culture or bad culture? The smallest thing then, when it serves a beneficial purpose, creates and affects culture. Point six. Cain's descendants were not alone to produce culture, thankfully. God gave Adam and Eve Seth. Third son, for we are told that God does not intend, listen, he does not intend to leave these benefits, these riches of the earth to non-believers who wish to remain covenant-breaking people alienated from him. He won't leave them culture. No, he intends to give it to, give it all. He intends to give it all to his people. As Jesus pointed out, and I quoted this morning from Matthew five. 5 Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And so we're introduced to the meek now in Genesis 4 when we read of the household of Seth the third son of Adam and Eve. He's introduced in verses 25 and 26. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed me for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So Seth also a son was born, and he called his, uh, sorry, Seth also, I don't know, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Whew! You hate to leave it all to Cain and his people. Seth joins the human family and adds his culture-making to that of his brother. And, of course, there are many, many others who have been born at this point uh, by by, uh, men and women. The great difference between Cain, however, the city builder, and Seth is that Seth and his family look to God again. They start to look to him again. They identify as sons of Jehovah God. God was their reason for living. They they saw that the culture mandate was his command, not something they're just going to do on their own for themselves. It was his command. And we see worship is given now a distinct foothold in Seth's family tree. This is in verse 26. It says people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And that is is who you want to be. You want to be one of them. Someone who calls upon the name of the Lord and trains up your children, trains up your grandchildren and descendants to do the same. You want to create culture for him. That's why you're alive. Because your whole life and all work, it belongs to him. Not just your Sunday mornings. Thank the Lord for the lineage of Seth. Point seven. Although hope for godly men was restored in Seth, although hope for godly men was restored in Seth, mankind still aspired more toward evil than good. Seth's line it didn't remain strong and much of the work of civilization was squandered to satisfy temptation and sin and lust and gluttony and greed and soon Seth's line Soon Seth's family tree started to intermingle with the descendants of the non-believers. They intermarried. The sons of God began to marry the daughters of men, Genesis 6, 1 and 2 says. And they, they put themselves on the short course heading for the great flood, the great judgment. They all began to work for the things they wanted rather than the things God wants. When people are untethered from God and His Word, they create things differently. They create lurid songs, they write graphically erotic books. Build and plant and churn out inventions and products to what to spend on themselves, not it's not all that way. Professor Henry Van Til wrote that culture is always a means of expressing one's religious faith. Culture is always a means of expressing one's religious faith. So if people are if people are irreligious, or partake of some other god altogether. You can expect them to build a culture based upon their faith or lack of it. A man's religion is the root from which his tree grows and he will bear fruit for it. We know the believing family line of Seth did produce a man named Noah in whom God saw righteousness. And though the world with devils filled had debauched the earth, it was Noah and his three sons and their wives to whom God would what? He would entrust the earth. Noah would inherit everything. And you see this through history. Ebbs and flows. Similar example later on is when God gives the land flowing with milk and honey to the Hebrews. He gave them great and good cities that they did not build, and houses full of all good things that they did not fill, and cisterns that they did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that they did not plant, and they would have their fill of these things because the meek inherit the earth. Point eight, God removed the ungodly who built a strong culture. He removed the ungodly who built a strong culture, but dishonored him. He gave to his people the land and culture of the Canaanites and the Kenizzites and the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. That is what he told Abraham he would do. Back in Genesis fifteen nineteen, This is after Noah, of course. At that time, the Amorites had not completely filled up the cup of their iniquity, he said. But they would. And rest assured, hear this. This is a Nigel Lee thought. Rest assured, God does not tolerate trespassers forever. He does not tolerate trespassers forever. He won't today either. Those who are fearful. He will not tolerate trespassers forever. Please do not listen to some of the voices of the Christian church today who say it's all going bad. Oh, 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 oh. Don't be defeated like they're defeated. It won't happen that way. He won't tolerate trespassers today either. And seeing as Abraham's household, okay, inherits Abraham's household inherits the whole world in Jesus Christ, according to Romans four thirteen, then sooner or later the trespassers must go, for indeed the meek inherit the earth. Point nine. So though Seth so, so through Seth, we come down to Noah. Okay, I'm going back again. And it was Noah who brought onto the ark God's creatures and some of man's established cultural production. The ark itself was a, a marvel of nautical advancement. It was huge, and it floated. Further, God gave Noah the insight and the responsibility to gather up all that would be necessary. Why? to carry on mankind's cultural mandate after the waters receded. What survived the flood in the ark? Animals survived and other things as well. Parchments, samples, tools, as well as thoughts and memories. Surely Noah brought a historically developed culture into the ark with him and then out again. Without question, those who perish in the flood and their ancestors contributed to civilization that would be built afterward. It's the same for us. We are the beneficiaries of much culture that precedes us. You and I can rejoice about the telephone, okay, the internet, a furnace in your basement, indoor plumbing, paint, couches and chairs, Vehicles, lawnmowers, gasoline, baseball, electricity, artwork, frozen pizza, and licorice. What a wonderful invention that is. I don't really care if the product was produced by a Christian or a non-Christian. Near as much as it is beneficial and God smiles upon it. And you and I know that non Christians in society are often more precise and productive and professional and skilled than Christians are. We work alongside some of them, don't we? We're entertained by some of them, aren't we? We buy from them, we sell to them. They are our neighbors and our colleagues. But it's also true that non-Christians produce more decadence in a culture. Point 10. This is the last point. And this is the most dicey. Or, I shouldn't say dicey. I think I'd say that this point is the most imaginative. If the meek inherit the earth, what will that look like? I'm not talking about in history, through history. I think that happens. I do believe Jesus Christ regularly hands over dominion of the earth to his obedient people in time. However, I wonder what it will look like when history ends. When Jesus returns and the resurrection occurs and eternity begins, what of all man's culture will remain? What will we inherit? Surely it will, it will not all be cast cast into the trash can, will it? Some do think this is what happens that everything gets burned up by some fiery conflagration, conflagration and nothing of man's culture is left over. This suggests that the many thousands of generations or by then many, many, many thousands of generations of mankind and his cultural work amounted to nothing worth keeping. Really? Nothing worth keeping? That seems inaccurate to me. Everything gets burned up. What, do we walk around naked now? And there's only the creation again? Nature? Nah. Any fiery conflagration would surely be merely to cleanse, to refine, but destroy? Right? Right? So I am not of the doom and gloom end times burning up of the earthly elements as if those were scientific elements, judgment camp. Verses used to describe such a scenario seem to be taken out of their biblical context. In contrast, I believe when Jesus returns, things become fully sanctified. And let's say, let's say instantly fixed by renewal. Renewal. Not new. Renewal. This would mean things aren't made new, but they are renewed. Just like people. Just like our bodies will be. So now I'm going to My last paragraph, imagine what that could look like. I believe there will be skyscrapers still. Skyscrapers that stand even now, maybe, or new ones. Unless some better building uh, technology was created in the course of time by men and women. What do you think? I believe that libraries will be filled with books then. I believe that vehicles of some sort, maybe ones that pass through the air, that would be cool. Maybe we beam ourselves different places at that point. I doubt that, but... I believe that vehicles of some sort will still transport us from one place to another only without, without harmful accidents. If you don't believe that, what do you believe? How will we get around? Or will we not go anywhere? Will we not need to because all we need to do is just stand in existence because somehow we don't need to be transported anymore? That's a foolish sounding idea. Of course, conjecture, right? I, will, I believe there will be no need for policemen unless they're working in ways other than dealing with criminal behavior. Prisons will be converted into something useful. I I don't think there will be any need for door locks. And I think a lot of these things will have been worked out already in the course of time. And art, art will be appreciated by everybody. But pornography will not exist. I'm uncertain as to whether we will need to shower or bathe. Probably we will, but for maybe a different effect, right? My hair's got messed up. I see little boys and girls. I don't know if there'll be little boys and girls running around at that time, but I see their, their color pictures that they, that they colored for mom or dad still on refrigerator because that's a cultural thing that should last. I see people planting and hoeing and watering and harvesting, but no weeds and thorns and thistles. Unless those are what you wanted to plant, I'd be good at that, I think. I see people building only godly culture, but still building culture. I think that's why God made us. Ultimately, I see that sinners and pain and death are gone, and the meek have inherited the earth. Let us pray. Lord, I ask that we would be such a people that uh, we pour ourselves into this world for the benefit of you as owner of all culture, that the gifts you've given us, the skills you've given us, the opportunities that we would take advantage of them and Lord, those that are non-believers that that share some of our common goals, I pray that you would use us to to convert them, to bring you to them, that that we might work together because you are the heir, heir of all the world. Amen.